Lord, with, with grateful hearts, Lord, and anticipation in our hearts, knowing that you have ordained this time here together, Father, that it's no coincidence that we're here. And you bring us here, to, Lord, to bless us, Lord, to instruct us. And that's what our hearts desire, Father, that you would instruct us, Father, that we might just continue to grow in our relationship with you. And so I ask now, Father, for open hearts, that the lesson tonight here that I deliver would build upon the discussions that the women have had, Lord. It would build upon the time they've spent in your word already doing the homework. And that they would see how everything fits together, Lord. And that they would um, be encouraged, Father. So we ask that you would do this now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I'm sure I'm not the only one here who grew up playing the board game Clue, right? So after you go around and around, you ask all these questions, you try to you know, get information, and then there comes this moment of truth, right, where you try to solve the mystery. And so you kind of clear your throat, and then with confidence you would say, it was Mr. Green in the library with a lead pipe, right? You guys remember that game? And sometimes you nailed it, sometimes you got it right, but other times you were kind of dismayed to find out that it was really Miss Scarlet in the lounge with a candlestick, right? But um, so this whole idea of mystery, sometimes they aren't always as clear and as, as simple as we as we think they are. Or maybe you're more into um, real life mysteries, the whole thing of like, what really happened to Amelia Earhart? You know, maybe one of those are the kinds of things, or is there a Loch Ness monster? Or who built Stonehenge? Or maybe even who shot JR, right? So like, those are the, the mysteries. Does that count as a mystery, right? So those are things that sometimes, you know, we wonder about. When you look up the word mystery, if you look on it online, the, the definition will be something like, a mystery is something that's difficult or impossible to explain. That makes sense. And I have this dictionary I got from my grandfather's um, landscape architecture office. And it's a 1961 Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, and I love it. And in there, it has a very similar definition. It says, um, a mystery is something that has not been or cannot be explained. Just kind of like the other one. But then he adds this. Hence, it's something beyond human comprehension. And I love that. If it's a mystery, if it's something that cannot be explained, it's beyond human comprehension. And that's, that's something I think that's really important for us to keep in mind. There was a man who passed away last week on January 27th. His name was Charles Town. He was 99 years old, and he's the guy who invented the laser. I don't know if you heard. He was 99 years old, had worked here at Caltech a little bit and some other places, and he was a devout Christian. He was a devout Christian. And when he you hear him recount his story about how he actually – um, got the idea for the laser, they were dealing with this problem. They were trying to, Einstein had predicted it would be possible, but no one had ever quite figured out how to do it, and he was, they were dealing with this problem. He actually used the word revelation to describe how it came to him. And it was so refreshing to hear somebody give God credit, because so often as you know, mankind prides himself in his knowledge and in his accomplishments, so often you know, people boast that it's their own intellect, it's their own perseverance, it's their own hard work that brings about some kind of an understanding or brings about their success, but we know as believers that, that we're not that bright, and it, it doesn't work like that. Well, it's true, right? And there's a great verse in the Bible that many of you are familiar with, I'm sure, Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children. So he is the one who knows everything, and he chooses to reveal some things to us. And that's kind of like our, our topic tonight. We're talking here about a mystery. We're going to focus on one of those greatest mysteries in Scripture, and something we've touched on already, and that's the uniting of, of the Jews and Gentiles together into one body in Christ. And it's an important theme throughout the, the book of Ephesians. Karen touched on it in chapter 1. Donna expanded on it last week in chapter 2. And so now here in chapter 3, Paul's going to reflect on, excuse me, the cough drop, the revelation of, of this mystery 
and how it should impact our lives. And as you read through chapter two, excuse me, chapter three, I'm sure you saw there's kind of like a real natural division in there. In, and that's how we're going to take it in two parts. So in verses one through 13, we see Paul's testimony. And then in verses 14 to 22, we see his prayer. So we've got the beginning as his testimony, and then we, it's his prayer. And now while all of God's word is, is equally important, what I want to do tonight is spend the bulk of our time looking at Paul's prayer down in verse 14 down through the end. Because I feel it's just really, really practical. There's a lot in there that we can apply to our lives. And it's not that his testimony about the, ministry, the mystery isn't very important, but I kind of chuckle. It's kind of like the prerogative I have as a teacher is deciding which way we're going to go. And I really just feel that, that the prayer is going to give us a lot, of, a lot of good insight tonight. You know, sometimes we look at the Apostle Paul, and he looks just so unapproachable. I mean, he looks like this huge, huge spiritual giant. He looks so different than we are. And while he was, I mean, in a sense, a spiritual giant, God used him tremendously. He was, in many ways, a regular person like, like you and I are. And tonight, let's just keep our hearts open as we get into God's Word. And let's understand what this mystery is and why this mystery had such a powerful impact on, on Paul's life. So we're going to take the first part. It's going to be verses 1 through 13. And this is Paul's testimony. And in chapter 1, Karen shared the blessings that we have in Christ. And they were given to us by the Father. They're centered in His Son, Jesus. And these are ministered to us by the Holy Spirit. And then last week, um, Donna came along and she explained this new life in Christ that we have. She explained the process of that new life that we have, the purpose of that new life, the price that it took us to acquire that new life, and the privilege that we have to have this new life in Christ. Last week, towards the end of chapter 2, in chapter 2, verse 19, there's a verse that says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so here we see that the Ephesian church, we have to remember, they weren't Jewish believers. They weren't Jews who became Christians, but they were Gentiles. And they came out of this pagan background. But now they've put their faith in Christ. So they're members of the household of God, the same members of the household of faith. And they have equal access to all the blessings that, and the riches that God has prepared for them. And so it's with this idea that Paul begins chapter 3. And we always have to remind ourselves that these divisions are man-made. That's just a letter that goes straight through. So the end, he's talking about how they're joined together. The end of chapter 2, he's talking about how the Jews and Gentiles are joined together. And now he's going to jump into chapter 3 here. And this first part we're looking at, verses 1 through 13, we're going to divide it in two sections. The first section is verses 1 through 6. And here Paul's going to talk about the revelation of the mystery. So I want to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in that mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it's now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So this is a revelation of the mystery. And it, it, I'm sure all of us can relate to Paul here as he starts in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. And then all of a sudden he gets sidetracked, right? Did any of you notice that? That he just goes way off, right? And I mean, I, I know it happens to all of us. There's things that just trigger a thought in our mind. And for Paul, it was the word Gentile. He said, um, for you Gentiles. And all of a sudden he digressed here to explain once again that, that mystery. 
you have to remember he's writing from a prison there in Rome. And you have to wonder, okay, how is it that he ended up in that prison? He came back to Jerusalem. And when he was in Jerusalem, um, he was actually, the, the Jews practically caused a riot around him because they were accusing him of, of hanging out with the Gentiles, basically. They said he had brought a Gentile into the temple, which he didn't. But just the fact that Paul is with these Gentiles, it set off this big to-do there in Jerusalem. And in fact, they actually set up a plot to kill him. To avoid being killed by the Jews, Paul had to appeal to Caesar. So he finds himself on a boat going to Rome, and now he finds himself in this jail. And it's all because of the Gentiles. Not in, in a way to blame them, but because of his ministry to the Gentiles. So he hits that word, and it just triggers all of this in his mind. And he goes on this tangent again to explain to them. In verse 2, you see the word dispensation. It can mean a stewardship, and it also means an arrangement or a plan. It's kind of like it refers to God's call on Paul's life. I like the way one translation put verse 2. It says, Surely you've heard how God assigned the gift of his grace to me for your benefit. Paul had a real, real deep sense of responsibility toward the Gentiles because he knew that God had called him specifically for that. In verses 3 through 6, Paul's reminding them of what he means by the word mystery. Like we said, the, the believers there in Ephesus, they were pagans who became Christians. And a lot of the pagan religions had these, these mysteries associated with them. They would be mysteries that, that certain people, if you were kind of special enough, you had this knowledge in the religion that other people didn't have. So when Paul starts to use the word mystery, he has to remind them what he means by it. It's that revelation of, of the Jew and Gentile together. And with this new faith they have in Christ, they, now ha they were now partakers of all the promises of God. Not like those pagan mystery religions where certain people had certain knowledge and certain privilege, but they all had equal access to all the promises of Christ. And he reminds them also that these things were revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's not just making this up or giving it out of his own authority. So that's what we see in verses 1 through 6. It's like the revelation of the mystery, how he, how he became the one to share this mystery. I want to read verses 7 through 13. And in here, we understand more about the ministry of the mystery. God gave him the knowledge of this mystery, and we're going to read about how it affected his ministry. So I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. And they say, Of which I became a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence to faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulation for you, which is your glory." Don't these long sentences drive you nuts? You know, I mean, they really, really take a lot of just sitting down and figuring stuff out. Like I said, I teach fifth grade, and we're trying to get them to expand their sentences and make them longer. And then you see someone like Paul, it's like, oh, my goodness. You know, he must have had a good fifth grade teacher. <laughs> so, so here when we, look at, when we look at these verses, verses 7 through 13, there's five different aspects of, of Paul's ministry that we see here. In verse 7, we see he was called by God. He talks about the, the, he says, according to the gift of the grace of God. So he was called by God. And one commentator put it this way. He said, God laid his hand upon the persecutor from Tarsus 
and sent him to the Gentiles. So we see that Paul's call came from God, and he's reminding them of that. In verse 8, another part of his ministry we see is that Paul considers his ministry an enormous privilege. I mean, look how he refers to himself, right, as, as um, less than the least of all the saints. Once he blasphemed and persecuted Christ, if you don't know his story, look in, in the book of Acts. But now, here he holds apostolic authority. So he considers the privilege that God has given to him to, to be a minister, he, he really values it because he knows where he came from. Another part of his ministry we see him, excuse me, of his ministry we see in verses eight and nine. And we see that Paul's ministry really has kind of like two fronts to it. In verse eight, he was sent to preach among the, the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We've mentioned that already, that God saved him and sent him to the Gentiles. But in verse nine, it also says that he went out to that he had a responsibility to share the the gospel with everyone. It says he had to make everyone see, to make all see what's the fellowship of the ministry. So even though he focused on the Gentiles, he understood he had a responsibility to share the gospel with all people. In verse 10, we see another part of his ministry. And this, I think, is very interesting. In verse 10, it talks about that as the church, which is the Jew and Gentile together, as the church is being, is being birthed, basically, the church is, be, is, is growing and the church is being created there in the New Testament through Paul's ministry, as the church is growing, the church reveals God's wisdom. But not just here on earth, but also in the heavenly realms. You know, we talked about how this was a mystery. You could read the whole Old Testament. God mentions the Gentiles, but he didn't say anything about them joining with the Jews and making like one group. We knew God was going to love the Gentiles and he was going to bless them, but we never knew how. That's what it means by a mystery. But you have to figure out, it's not just on earth, but in heaven. It's not like the angels know everything. They're not omniscient. They didn't know how God was going to work this out. So as, as God's plan is unfolding here on earth, Paul is ministering to the Jews and the Gentiles, and they're coming together. The angels are up in heaven. They're seeing that, and they're just amazed at God's wisdom. That's what verse 10 talks about, that his, as the church is coming into being, it's affecting even the heavenly realms. They're also seeing God's wisdom in that way. In verse 13, Paul is the last aspect here of his ministry. We see that Paul's sufferings, those sufferings which have come as a result of his ministry, he wants the, the Ephesian Christians, he wants them to be encouraged, not discouraged. A lot of times we see people we love going through hard times, and that can be very discouraging to us. But Paul's saying that he wants them to be encouraged at his tribulations. Okay, he doesn't want them to be discouraged by that. So in the beginning of this chapter, in verses 1 through 13, we see Paul's testimony. And it's not the story of his conversion, like I said. That's in the book of Acts in chapter 9. But it's the story of his ministry among the Gentiles. We see that he was called by God to make known this mystery that we've mentioned. We keep using that word. And that is that the Jews and the Gentiles would be fellow heirs together of, of all of God's promises in Christ. And ladies, it's kind of like the same way with us. I think about it. You know, Paul was saved for a specific purpose, to reach out to the Gentiles. And God has saved each of you for a very, very specific purpose. Donna shared last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, we should walk in them. And sometimes we feel, well, I, don't, I, I can't preach like the Apostle Paul or, or you know, God can't use me in that way. But, and, but God doesn't expect us to do that. All he wants us to do is to look for those specific things that he's marked out for each of us. There's a plan for each of our lives. And as we do that, as we step out and look for that plan that God created us for, just like Paul followed the plan God made for him, God's going to use us. 
God's going to use us the same way he used Paul, which is to reach many, many, many people. We also see in this section how, like I just mentioned, how as a church is created, that, that reveals God's wisdom. And don't you love the word? It says God's manifold wisdom, his multifaceted, his many-colored wisdom. God's wisdom, you can see it from all different angles and all different aspects. So the church actually reveals God's wisdom here on earth. And we said not just here on earth, but also like to the principalities in heaven. And in the same way, when God's saving grace comes on your life, when God saves you, when God does a work in your life, the people around us get a glimpse of God's love and his power. So the same way the church reveals God's wisdom, God's wisdom is revealed in you. People look at your life and they see what God has done and it gives them hope that God can do the same thing in their life. God saves us. He transforms us. People around us are a mess and they look at what God has done in your life and they say, wow, he did it for her. He can do it for me. So our lives can bring hope to people around us. Paul said uh, several times that, that God's grace on his life was for the sake of the Gentiles. He felt like he, God saved him for the Gentiles. And as I said, the same way when God saves us, it's not just for us. He saves us to reach those people around us. So this is Paul's testimony here, dealing with the ministry uh, of that mystery that God has given him to, to share. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to spend the bulk of our, our time at the end of the chapter here from verse 14 on down where we have um, Paul's prayer now there's a lot of there are several different prayers of Paul recorded in the New Testament in fact there's one in chapter 1 of Ephesians that Karen touched upon and I think he just has wonderful examples here of how to pray because a lot of times our prayers focus on the physical needs that we have and there's nothing wrong with that we pray for our jobs we pray for our loved ones around us who are sick we pray for ourselves we pray for current events we pray for things like that and as I said, there's nothing wrong with that because our Heavenly Father wants us to do that. But this prayer that Paul makes is totally focused on spiritual things. And that's why I think it's a really good guide for us because I know my prayers don't always focus on the spiritual things. right? A lot of times I can just tend to dwell on those things that, which are physical in nature because they're more immediate for me. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with that, those to pray for those things. But I think it's a lot of good lessons for us here as we see Paul praying for spiritual things. Now, the central message of Ephesians up to this point has been our wealth in Christ. We talked about all the riches that we have in chapter 1, all these things that are available to us as, as children of God. But again, we're talking about riches. It's spiritual riches, spiritual blessings. It's not monetary. So before you go and accuse me of preaching some prosperity doctrine, just remember we're talking about spiritual riches that, that Paul is talking about here, okay? And there's really no, it's not a coincidence that Paul inserted this prayer here at the end of chapter 3 because what he's going to do here... He's going to um, ask God to bless these Ephesians. And in, when we get to chapter 4, if you've read ahead, you already know this. When we get to chapter 4, we get into the walk of a believer, how we should walk as Christians. And God knows, as well as Paul, that we cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot walk in a way that's pleasing to God in our own strength. In order to live our Christian life and live it in a way that God expects us to, we need his enabling. And that's where Paul's prayer comes in here at the end of chapter 3. And there's a lot of different ways to look at this prayer and to break it apart. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through it, and then we'll go through it verse by verse. And as we do this, we're going to see three main requests that he makes. And don't worry if you don't write these down, I'll, I'll highlight them. But there's three requests that he makes. And the word that is a key word that you can use to kind of indicate these requests. And these three requests are found in verses 16 and 17. And the first one is for the Ephesians to be strengthened through the Holy Spirit. 
The second request is for Christ to dwell in them. And the third request is for them to comprehend the love of Christ. Now, when you get down to verse 19, you find the word that again. But it has a different meaning. It's more like a conclusion. It's more like so that or in order that. And so down in verse 19, what we see is like the overall goal. He's got these three requests that he makes to God with the overall goal in verse 19 for them to be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going to go with this. So I want to read verses 14 through 22. I'm going to read it straight through, and then we'll kind of take it apart. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So in verse 14 and 15, he says, For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I love it. Again, he picks up where he left off. Remember his distraction? For this reason in verse 1? He's like, oh yeah, wait. For this reason, right, he gets back to it. I hope that when I get on my tangents, I get back, right? That's what we just got to hope. So he says, um, on his knees, he bows his knees. And it's interesting because the Jews would usually pray with their hands raised. They usually prayed standing with their arms out and raised. And so when Paul says that he's bowing his knee here, we really get an idea of the deep burden that he has, of the intensity of his prayer here for, for the Ephesians. And he prays to God the Father. And that seems really obvious to us, but a lot of us know people who are in other religions, or maybe we ourselves came out of another religion where people don't pray to God the Father. Many religions, Eastern religions, pray to their ancestors, for example. And some of us know people who still do that. Or other religions pray to saints. In Catholicism, they might pray to saints or to Mary. So Paul makes it very clear here. He's praying to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we find that first request now in verse 16. The first request he makes, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That he would grant you. Notice that it's a gift. There's nothing, ladies, that we can do. We can't earn this. There's nothing we have to try to do. Paul is asking God to give this to them. It's a gift that God would grant them. And what is the measure? How is he going to do this? According to the riches of his glory. I thought it was very interesting. He says, according to the riches of his glory. Because there's a huge difference between according to the riches and out of or from the riches. I think I could illustrate probably better. If, if I were a millionaire and I said, okay, do you want me to give you out of my riches? And then I give you 100 bucks. I gave you out of my riches. Or do you want me to give you according to my riches? I have a million dollars. So chances are if I give you according to my riches, it would be a much more generous gift. You see what I'm saying? So it's according to. That's the measurement. God's, God's glory is endless. His glory is endless. So when he gives to us, he gives so generously. He gives us according to the riches of his glory because his glory is endless. He doesn't just give it to us out of it. But because his, his wealth is endless, he gives abundantly to us. And what is it specifically that Paul's asking for here? He said that God would strengthen their inner man. This is so comforting to me that God knows my frailties. He knows my frailties. He created us. 
He knows, it says in Psalm 103.14, He knows our frame. He remembers we are dust. We don't th remember that sometimes. We put on a front. We feel we got to be strong and stuff. But God knows our frailties. And Paul is praying that God would strengthen their inner man. He's not asking for physical strength. Not that we can't ask for physical strength. But remember the focus of his prayer here is spiritual. And where we need strength so often is in that inner man. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul writes and says, Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's what Paul wants. He wants our in, inner man to be renewed. And he wants it, us to be strengthened with might. That word might is a Greek word dunamis, and it means power. That's what he wants us to have. And where does his strength come from? Again, in verse 16, where does it come from? Through his spirit. So we're not talking about some kind of positive thinking. It's not about getting your act together. It's not anything, you know, some program or anything. But this strength we're talking about, it's a divine strength that comes from the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit in us. Now, when we're born again, the scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit does come and he dwells in us. But the Bible also teaches that God desires to pour his spirit out upon us to give us power so we can live our lives effectively for Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about here. I thought it was really interesting. Paul's praying this. And about 30 years later, the Apostle John is going to write the book of Revelation. And he's going to write the words of Jesus. So in, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the church at Ephesus. Same church that Paul's writing to here. So Paul's writing to them. 30 years later, Jesus is talking about them in the book of Revelation as he's talking to John. And what he says, he says, you know, he commends them for their work. He commends the church of Ephesus for their perseverance. But he brings a charge against them. This is just like 30 years later. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. He's not saying they weren't Christians. They were Christians. But their love for Jesus and their love for all the things of God had waned. And ladies, all of us have the potential to do the same thing. All of us have that potential. Because that fervor that's in our heart, it can wane. Our love towards Christ, it can lose its passion. And Paul knows the frailty of these Ephesian believers. He knows how frail they are. And so he's asking God to strengthen them. Strengthen them on the inside with their Holy Spirit. And this, I think, is a great, pair, a great prayer for us to use also, whether it's for ourselves or for others. Lord, strengthen me by your Holy Spirit so I can walk more closely to you. Lord, Lord strengthen my husband on the inside so he can lead our family. God, strengthen my children by your Holy Spirit according to the riches of your glory so they can stand for you in this dark world. Right? That's what he's saying. We need to pray for this, for that inner strength. So the first request here is that he would grant us, to, um, according to his riches of glory, he would strengthen us on the inside by his Holy Spirit. The second request that Paul makes is in the beginning of verse 17. Again, it's indicated with the word that. And he says, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And you may be asking, well, aren't the Ephesians already Christians? I mean, when we become a Christian, doesn't Christ come into our hearts when we're born again? So what exactly is Paul saying here when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith? And if you think about it like this, when you, you are born again, you invite Jesus into your life. Christ does come into your heart. But, and the word dwell here gives that idea of settling down and feeling at home. Taking up a permanent residence. That's what Paul's talking about. He wants Christ to settle into their lives as the Lord to rule over their lives he wants Christ to be much more than just merely a guest right he wants to dwell there to settle into your life and how how does this happen it says through faith we need to willingly yield our hearts to him we have to trust everything that he wants to do in our lives is going to be for his glory and it's also going to be for our benefit 
It makes me think of, of when you remodel your house or part of it. Maybe a bathroom, maybe a kitchen, something like that. Now, I live by myself, and so when I remodeled my kitchen, I consulted with some friends, but, I mean, I made all the decisions. I mean, I didn't have to come to consensus with anybody. <laughs> my cat didn't care, right? So, it, I mean, it was just me. Now, and if you're married and you're going through that kind of process or have, chances are that you and your spouse don't always have the same ideas when it comes to remodeling, right? So there has to be that, that give and take on things to come to that agreement. Well, when Christ comes in to dwell into our hearts, he's probably going to want to do some remodeling with our hearts and in our lives, right? So a guest wouldn't do that, okay? But he's more than a guest. And whether I wholeheartedly agree with the color he picks or not, right, whether I wholeheartedly agree with the style, okay, the thing is he's shaping my life and he's shaping my heart into what he wants it to be. And so I need to accept by faith that he knows best. And it may not be, like I said, what I had in mind, but I have to put my faith and confidence in him. So the idea here, the second request, is that Christ would dwell. He'd settle into our hearts through faith, that we would invite him in, to, but to be that Lord over our lives, and we would, with faith, accept what he d does in our lives. The third request starts in chapter, excuse me, in verse 17, on a little bit, and it's kind of long. It goes up to verse 19, but again, it starts with the word that. So he says, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So this was kind of long, but we'll just take it, like I said, kind of by the phrases here. And the first phrase here is being rooted and grounded in love. The word love here refers to God's agape love, that perfect, that selfless love that flows from God alone. And he describes it two ways. He says rooted and grounded in love. So to be rooted in love, obviously just get the mental picture of a tree, right? What does the root do? The roots anchor the tree. They anchor it against the storms, against the wind. They also, the roots also absorb that water that the, is essential for the tree's survival. We need to have a firm grip upon the love of God in order to survive all the storms of our life. So think about it. Are you going through some storms right now? It's like, you know, you're kind of like being shaken around? Then what we need to do is we have to grab a hold of God's love. We have to be rooted in God's love. Imagine, just picture how the trees, how the roots of the trees, how they wrap around those rocks, how they entwine with the soil and everything. That's what we need to do. We have to immerse ourselves in God's love, really dig into it. Because when we do that, when we fully grasp it and experience it, then that's going to that's gonna steady us in the middle of all those storms. One way we can do that is to let him settle into our heart, like we said before. Let Christ settle into our hearts. And then that, he can't just, like, I can't just give him the guest room. Right? You've got to let him settle into your heart. And then that's going to help me to be rooted in love, to ground myself in God's love. The other phrase there is grounded. It's the same image, but this time instead of a tree, think of a building. You know, the, digger, the, the deeper that you dig down and set the foundation, the higher the building can reach. Right? The deeper the foundation, that means the building can be higher. And so that's the whole idea here. Grounded in God's love. He wants our lives to stand tall. He wants our lives to stand strong. And not to bring attention to ourselves, but why? So we can be that light on a hill, right? That city on a hill. He wants people to look to us. And so in order for my life to, ru to rise above all the chaos of this world, I have to have a deep foundation. And it has to be built upon the love of God. Okay? We all know we live here in earthquake country. We hear news about those buildings that just don't have a good enough foundation, right, to make it through that big one. Well, you've all lived long enough to know that you're going to experience a lot of big ones in your life. <laughs> right? There's going to be those things that are just going to shake your world. Or as my friend would say, rattle your snow globe, right? <laughs> those things happen. But 
Only God's love is strong enough to hold me up when everything around me comes crashing down. Only his love is going to do that. And that's because his, his love is eternal. His love is unchanging. It's always going to be there, and his love is always going to be the same for me. So ladies, be sure that you're not building your life on your husband, on your boyfriend, on your career, on your children, on your bank account, or anything else except the love of God. That's what we have to build our life upon. We have to get to know God. We have to know his infinite love. And we have to make that a priority for our life so that we can be rooted and grounded in that love. What else does Paul have in, that, in this, this request? That we would comprehend with all the saints. Comprehend means to grasp, to lay hold of something. And with all the saints. I like that because, you know, knowing God's love and growing in Christ is not an individual thing, but it happens in the context of the church. So he's saying with all the saints, with each other we're doing this. I'm not going through it alone. You're not going through it alone. But together we're going through this. And what does he say he wants us to comprehend? What is the width and length and depth and height? And it's kind of interesting. I mean, not that I'm a Greek scholar, but as you read about these things, you know, in the New Testament was written in Greek. And there's actually, in the Greek, there's no indication of what he's talking about when he says this. In other words, it's kind of like, what is the width, the length, the depth, and the height of it? He doesn't make, he doesn't connect it to anything. Okay, now, what we generally connect it to is what follows in verse 19, which is the love of Christ. And that's not incorrect or anything, but it's just interesting that Paul didn't necessarily make that connection real explicit. Now, some people will say, He's just piling up words here just for emphasis. You know, like the height, the width, the depth. And he's just putting all these words just like because he wants to, you know, make a strong point. But I like what one of the commentators said. He took all of those words and he said, you know, we can say the love of Christ is broad enough or wide enough because it encompasses all mankind, including Jews and Gentiles. And that's what we've been talking about. His love is long enough or the length of his love because it lasts through all eternity. His love is deep enough, the depth. It reaches down to get the most degraded sinner. And his love is high enough, the height of it, because one day he's going to exalt each of us into heaven. So when he talks about that, he talks about the width, the length, the depth, and the height. Like I said, we're, we're assuming he's talking about um, the love of God, because that's what follows in that next verse. In verse 19, he says, to know the love of Christ. The word know here means to come to know and like to completely understand and realize. It's not a head knowledge. My fifth graders are currently learning the states and capitals. That's just head knowledge. They can know the capital of Massachusetts, right? But that's, it's not something like inside of them that they have experienced. It's just head knowledge. So Paul wants us to know the love of Christ. And this kind of knowledge is not obtained by mere intellectual activity, but it's an operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What does he say then? I love it. He goes, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Like, know it, it passes knowledge know something that can't be known it's like paul what are you saying <laughs> right you, you look at this sometimes like what is he getting at here to know it by personal experience the amplified version translate verse translates verse 19 it says that you may really come to know practically through experience for yourselves the love of christ which far surpasses mere knowledge so in other words he wants us to know the love of christ for reals by experience which passes knowledge head knowledge we can hear about the love of Christ. You know, the, the expression of Christ's love is knowable. We see it on the cross. I can look at the cross. I could see the love of Christ. But the essence of it is something that's unknown to us. The love of Christ in all of its fullness is something beyond us. It passes our knowledge. 
It's something that can't be grasped by us. And as we walk with the Lord, there are constantly um, new depths of Christ's love to be, for us to experience. As you go back again through that, in that verse, and we're going through um, those three different requests that Paul made. The first one, to be strengthened. He asked, us to be, he asked God to strengthen us in our inner man. He said Christ, we want Christ to dwell in our hearts for us to comprehend the love of Christ, right? So now we're here in, in verse 19. And what is the goal? His overall purpose of all of this is that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what all of this is, is going towards. These things so that we can be filled with the fullness of God. All the fullness of God, the glorious sum total of everything that God is. The Amplified Version reads, That you may be filled through all your being unto all the fullness of God. That is, you may have the richest measure of the divine presence and become holy, bodily filled and flooded with God himself. I don't think I can handle that. <laughs> you know? One commentator said, you know, the more that we're filled with God's fullness, the less room there is in my heart for sin, for fear, for doubt, for pain. So if we're talking about being filled with the fullness of God, the more of God there is in us, the less room there is for all that other stuff, right? Now I see why Paul is making that prayer for these Ephesians, right? He's saying if they can grasp everything about who God is, if everything that God desires them to be, everything that God wants to do in their life, if they can get a hold on that, then they're, they're on their way to being filled with the fullness of God, which is his goal. And it's going to leave less room for them in, in their hearts. So I think, okay, what about us? I mean, if God could have more of me, if he could have more of you, if the Holy Spirit would strengthen us on the inside, if we would allow Christ to settle down and actually dwell in our hearts and let him have that full control over our lives, if we could truly comprehend that love of Christ, we can know it by personally experiencing it in our own lives. It wouldn't just be head knowledge. Then we too would be experiencing more and more of the fullness of God in our lives. And I think, how can we ever hope to be recipients of the fullness of God? I mean, the thought of that to me is very, very overwhelming. I mean, everything that Paul is praying for them and, and for us, to me it seems, it just seems so awesome, so amazing, so magnificent, so impossible. <laughs> you know, all these things. Honestly, I read this, I go, wow. It almost seems like it's too good to be true. Pinch me, you know. It's like, really? All that stuff can happen? And it seems that it's almost unattainable. But Paul's not done yet. He's got two more verses here. So buckle up. So, and, and you know, he doesn't leave us hanging there. He shows us how it all comes together in these last two verses, in verse 20 and 21. And so after sharing all about the mystery that God had revealed in him, about the Jews and the Gentiles, after, his ex after expressing all his love for the Ephesians, um, in this passionate prayer, then we, need, then we see Paul's heart here in verse 20 and 21. His heart just like bursts out in praise to God. This, they call this his doxology. A doxology is an expression of praise. So right now Paul's heart is just like bursting. And it just all of a sudden just blurts out all this praise to God. And it reminds us that everything that he prayed for is possible. It is possible to be filled with all the fullness of God. And how is all that possible? Because of the one to whom he's praying. Because who, whom is he asking all of this of? What does he say in verse 20? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Four important words. Him who is able. Him who is able. Right? God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. He's able to do anything. So everything that Paul is asking God for the Ephesians and the things that we are desiring in our own lives, God is able to do this, ladies. He is able to do it. 
And notice how he does it. He does it exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. The scope of God's ability to do it, it exceeds all the hopes, all the imaginations of our heart. And I love it that Paul didn't write, he can do all that we ask or think. He didn't even write, he can do above all that we ask or think. And he didn't even write, he can do abundantly above all that we ask or think. But how did he do it? He said, he can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. And how is he going to do it? According to the power that works in us. Notice this power doesn't come from us. It's according to the power that works in us. Okay, it's nothing we have to conjure up. The power is in us. And Karen talked about this power in chapter 1. In Paul's prayer in chapter 1, in verses 15 to 23, he talks about this power. And it's the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The same power that took Christ out of the grave that raised him up, that power is available to accomplish all of these things that Paul has been praying for. And then why does he do it? Why does he do it? To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He does it to bring himself glory. So when God does a work in our lives, when God strengthens us by his Holy Spirit, when Christ settles down into our hearts and dwells within our hearts, when we can comprehend what the love of Christ is about, when we're filled with all the fullness of God, when all these things come together, God is glorified. When all these things come together, God is glorified. And what's cool is he's not just glorified here and now on earth, through our lives and through his church. It says that he's glorified forever and ever. And I was wondering, well, how does that work? I mean, how is he glorified forever and ever through all these things? And the way I think of it is this. You know, ladies, when, when Christ does a work in our life, when, he, when we're born again and he transforms us, right, and we worship him and stuff, and we give him honor and glory here on earth, one day we're going to be worshiping him in heaven. And so the, we're going to be giving him glory forever and ever and ever. So it starts here, but it's something that keeps going. When we walk with Jesus here on the earth, okay, and, and our hearts burst out in this praise for him right now, he transforms us. The people around us see the work that God's doing in your lives. Your friends rejoice with you, right? And together we rise up and we praise the Lord about that. The angels in heaven, remember we said they're looking down, they're seeing all that's happening, and they're joining in all this praise here too. And finally, one day we're all going to be up in heaven praising him. So that's what he means. It's going to give him glory forever and ever. Amen, right? That's just like, when he says it, like, that's like the exclamation mark for me on there. Amen, right? You know, I just read through this, and this chapter, it just is, to me, it was very, very, very uplifting as I read through it here. And as I, as I wrap up here, what I want you to do is kind of imagine that you're seated there in a home in Ephesus. You know, put yourself back a couple thousand years right? And, and Paul was the pastor. Paul had been in Ephesus. So he's writing to a church where he had pastored. Okay, so imagine you're there now. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you've been, you've heard um, that Paul was in jail and stuff. And now that Paul sent a letter. And so like you're all gathered around and Paul is reading this to you. Okay, Paul, you, your pastor who's now in a jail in Rome is reading this to you, right? And so you think back and you remember how Paul himself, how he ministered to you, how he ministered to your family there in Ephesus. And when you first heard that he was in prison in Rome, your heart stopped. I mean, you feared for his life. But now you just close your eyes and you're listening as someone is reading this to you, right? And all of the peace and the joy that comes into your heart replaces that fear that you felt. Paul recounts his ministry among you. He tells about how the Lord revealed the mystery of the church to him, how Jew and Gentile were going to be joined together in Christ. And he tells you, don't lose heart at my tribulations because those are for your glory. And then Paul begins to pray for you. And you're just sitting there listening to this prayer that he pours out. 
And you can hear the passion in the words that he writes as he's asking the Father to strengthen you. He's asking Christ to dwell in your heart so you can truly be able to comprehend what's that width, what's the length, the depth, and the height of the love of Christ that he has for you. And then you begin to grasp the love. As we grasp that love, then we're able to be filled with all that fullness of God. And then comes Paul's doxology, those last couple verses, that outpouring of praise from his heart to God's heart. And it's like this, I see it like this big wave that just grows larger and larger. It kind of surrounds everything in its path and just sweeps it all up into heaven with him. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know, ladies, if we want to be filled with all of that fullness of God, the only way that's going to happen is if we pursue him. Because he desires to do it. And he knows that we need it. And we know that we desperately need it, right? We need him to fill us. And so it's up to us. Not up to us to do something. It's not like you have to do something or try to make yourself a certain way so that all this is going to happen. All we have to do is we have to ask. We have to come to him humbly. We need to ask him. And then be ready to follow him as he shows us the way to walk deeper with him. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are just in awe of the work that you have done through the Apostle Paul, Lord, in the church there. And also, Father, as we reflect upon the work you've done in our own lives. Father, you have done amazing things in each and every one of our hearts, Lord. And it's our desire, Father, that you would just continue this work until you bring it to that completion. Lord, we ask that you would fill us through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Strengthen us on the inside, God. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would settle down into our hearts, that you would make it your abode, that you would just take over, Father, our hearts and our lives. We ask, God, that you would help us to understand more deeply the depth and the height and the width and the breadth of the, the love of your son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, all of this so that you would just fill us more fully day by day, Lord. Equip us, Lord, for those things, those good works that you have set out for each of us. God, you have a plan for each of our lives individually, Lord, for us as a family. Lord, things that you want to do. We need, Lord, your equipping. We need you to enable us, God. And it is our desire to walk in a way that pleases you, but we can't do it on our own. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would fill us this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.